Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a treat to have you here. Usually I end the show with a quote, but today I'm also starting it with one to get you thinking. All disease begins in the gut, Hippocrates. So have you changed your eating habits over the pandemic? Are you now more conscious about your diet and lifestyle? Have you noticed how eating well and staying active can not only support your physical vitality, but also your mental health too? My lockdown compulsion? Unripe bananas. I haven't eaten bananas for years and now only want green ones with my kefir and honey. Toasted pecan nuts with maudan sea salt. Cheese and my all-time favourite veg, purple sprouting with loads of walking too. My weak spots remain with chocolate and good wine. Today's guest is an expert when it comes to creating high quality, healthy meals, which are 80% plant-based and using 100% whole foods. Every dish is wheat-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free and chemical-free. Described by The Telegraph as the best diet delivery service for food lovers, their company delivers a whopping one million meals each year in the form of fridge fills, their nationwide delivery service, or meal plans within Greater London, and have had a 300% increase on uptake since lockdown. She has two central London delis, and her meals are stocked in Selfridges and Planet Organic. Clients include A-listers, and their most recent collaboration is with the BBC MasterChef winner, founder of Oaxaca, Thomasina Myers, who incidentally inspired me to apply to compete on the show as a contestant. And alongside building the business, our guest has also written two cookbooks, Detox Kitchen, as co-author with nutritionist Rob Hobson, and sole author of Detox Kitchen Vegetables. Enough preamble, it's time to introduce our guest, Lily Simpson, founder and CEO of The Detox Kitchen. Hello and welcome to H&P, Lily. Hi, thank you. I feel like I need you to teach me how to introduce myself better because when people ask me, I don't really know what to say, but you just did it really well, so thank you. (laughs) Ah, thank you very much, Lily. I've so enjoyed researching you. And funny enough, researching your story, Lily, took me back to my days when I was setting up my chocolate business and knowing that it was something I just had to do and winging it and moving 15 times in 15 months to keep the cash in the business and all that side of it. So you began your first chapter in the property world and ended up in one of food, in particular healthy eating. Would you share with us a whistle stop tour of the chapters to founding the detox kitchen which I believe was in 2012 yes yeah sure so I guess I probably always knew that I wanted to have my own company so that was always bubbling away even probably before I was at university I'd always been quite quick to try and earn a bit of cash on the side really then I went to university I did a degree that I probably shouldn't have done in hindsight which was real estate management and went on to work in property for four years which I really didn't particularly enjoy Um, And so I was always looking for something on the side that um, kind of gave me a bit more inspiration, I guess. And, you know, food, I'd always loved food, always loved cooking, have been brought up where, you know, the centre of our house is always the kitchen. So I started catering. I was actually working at a property company and they had lots of events. So I asked if I could cater for them and my manager let me do it. And it kind of just started from there, really. And I kind of built up this little catering company. I was you know, doing, by the end, I was doing a ridiculous amount of events, you know, every Friday and Saturday, I'd have kind of 10 events in the diary. And I loved it, but it was really hard going. And actually, I wasn't creating food that felt very true to me. You know, I was doing kind of really beautiful little canapes and kind of fiddly little food, whereas I'm much more about sort of home cooking. And so then by chance, a friend contacted me, she just had a baby and said, I'm feeling a bit rubbish. Can you, would you mind creating some food for me and sending it over uh, which I did and and she just loved it and, and I loved doing it I had such a sort of overwhelming sense of doing something meaningful really and helping someone who I loved feel better and it kind of just went from there like I think the week after she tried the food she was like you need to do this for other people I was like yes I do I'm going to so I set up a website not really knowing how to set up a website and and I didn't really spend very much money on it. I emailed everyone that I knew asking if they'd like to try some food, 
having worked in catering, I sort of knew what I was doing in terms of running a kitchen and kind of bringing on staff and, and chefs kind of ad hocly. Um, so it kind of just went from there. It felt very, you know, every day was was different. Every day was completely mad, running around like a lunatic most of the time, just trying to get everything done, cooking food, delivering the meals. But it was a really exciting time. And, and I think sort of underneath all of that, I was really excited about the prospect of creating healthy food for people and, you know, where that was going to go. And what is it, Lily, that's so vital to you that it needs to be healthy food? I think a couple of things, really. I think what I had realised, you know, I started doing a little bit of research into healthy food when I first started the company. And also, it sort of goes back to my childhood, really, where I always had a really good relationship with food and I never had to think about food. And I, I went to an all-girls school where eating disorders were prolific, really. And I just kind of, the whole thing was quite alien to me. And I realised quite quickly that a lot of people had this real disconnect with what they're eating and how they felt. And and I guess the kind of societal kind of demands on women for what they should and shouldn't be eating. And I kind of just wanted to change that because I had never experienced that really. You know, I had experienced my relationship with food was eat food, enjoy food, and make sure that food makes you feel great. And actually that's our kind of motto now, I guess, at Detox Kitchen, which is eat, feel good, repeat. You know, it's not about taking the joy out of food. If anything, it's about putting more joy into the food that you eat and getting more joy out of what you eat. Really, that's what healthy eating is about. So anyway, when I started sort of looking into this and, and thinking about my business and where I wanted it to go, I was quite shocked by the diet industry. You know, I was, I was only sort of 25, 26 at the time when I was starting Detox Kitchen. And, you know, the diet industry then was all about kind of low fat. You know, all yogurts were low fat, but they were mm -hmm. really sugar and you know it was about calorie control weight watchers and again that whole world was really alien to me it wasn't about real food you know that's how I had been brought up it was like let's go to the you know local grocers get loads of fresh herbs a, a whole roast chicken some vegetables and kind of make what we will of it and that for me is what a good diet is not sort of packaged food that's pretty beige and calorie controlled so I think I I just wanted to change that and I wanted to get people to to start really understanding that connection between having a really good, strong relationship with food that's really positive, not only in the eating of it, but also in the kind of outcome of it. And that was obviously developed over time. But, you know, even in the early days, that's why I started Detox Kitchen as a sort of meal plan business where I wanted people to try the food for five days continuously because I wanted them in that time from day one to day five to really notice the difference that food was having on them. And I think that was really our point of difference. It was like, come to Detox Kitchen, have really amazing, wholesome food delivered to you. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry. You can trust us that this is food that's going to be really good for you. And hopefully by the end of those five days, you're going to be feeling really good. You're going to be feeling energized. You know, you're going to kind of have stopped that sugar addiction, maybe, or you know, reaching for the biscuits at 11 o'clock when you're not really sure why you're doing that. And it worked, I think. That was the most exciting part of it all, is that the feedback we got in those early days was like, I can't tell you how much better my sleep is. I can't tell you how much more energy I have. I can't tell you how much happier I feel, how much kind of clearer I'm thinking. And that was that was the exciting part, I think, for me, of like, wow, this this is changing the way that people feel. And it wasn't about what the diet industry was about back then, which was changing how people look you know, yes, that's a side effect of eating this way in some respect. But for us, it was never, ever about that. It was always about just getting people to feel something rather than to look a certain way or be a certain size. It's very interesting you're you, you talking about your relationship with food and how healthy it was. I mean, certainly I'm a decade, I'd like to say younger, I'm a decade older than you. And my relationship with food was poor. And I had a real issue with my weight. And yet my mother was, you know, gloriously slim and mm. ate loads. And I found that whatever I ate just stuck on me around my hips. And it really affected me, affected me mentally, affected me physically. Yeah. Um, and then through exploring health and studying nutrition and, you know, sort of going down the sort of diet route and realizing that low fat didn't work and yo-yo dieting was out, mm. building the relationship up and working out what food really works for you and what doesn't. And I found that I could still eat high calorie foods that I've been ducking like nuts and all that side of it. 
and feel really healthy and full of vitality and not have this wedge sitting around my hips. Uh, mm. So, you know, what you what you created then was probably very much on trend in the way that people needed this guidance. They needed this education on what was better food for your vitality. But Lily, are you trained in what you do? Are you a trained nutritionist or cook or is it no, just... I'm- not at all. I'm just, I mean, I work with obviously a nutritionist and I co-wrote our book with, with Rob, who's a brilliant nutritionist. And obviously we, we talk to nutritionists and work with them all the time on different projects. But I think it's quite important that I'm not necessarily a nutritionist and I'm not necessarily a cook. I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm a businesswoman really, who, you know, sort of saw a gap in the market. But I'm, I'm a businesswoman led by a really positive vision to kind of change the diet industry in a way. And I think just going back to what you were saying, you know, in the last 10 years, so much has changed in the way that we understand diet. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the science is developing, but as well as that, we've realized that everyone is different. So nothing fits all. And, and what tends to happen and what has happened previously is people who think I'm going to do a low fat diet and that's going to change and I'm going to lose X amount of weight you know, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure because actually, as you just said, what you really need to do is listen to your body and listen to what what you should be eating, when you should be eating it, what makes you feel good, what makes you feel a bit rubbish. And I think once you develop that relationship with food, and I guess also, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so I think there's a lot of psychology built into what we eat. And we have to take all of these different aspects and different kind of pulls around the food and the food that, you know, I guess we desire. And if we want to change the way we eat, then you kind of need to look at all of those different points. Why am I eating that food? Why am I craving that food? And and then start realising what food, you know, what's the positive food in your life and what food do you really love and enjoy? Because I think that's the other thing as well is, it's one thing saying listen to the food that makes you feel good but if broccoli is the food that you know makes you feel good but you really really don't enjoy eating it then you shouldn't really be eating that either so it's always striking this balance of you know can you eat food that you absolutely love and every mouthful is absolutely delicious but you also know that that food is really good for your health and is kind of functional in the way that food should be which is you know fueling your body to be in a good place. It is. It's fascinating how you can reset your brain and devour foods that previously you thought, oh, no, I really don't like that. And and you find yeah. that you're, you're sort of tipping in. So, Lily, did you ever see yourself doing what you're doing now? Is this is this a vision that you've had for some time? Yes, I, th- I think it, I think it is. I think it's a kind of it's like a double sided vision, I guess, in that I'd always seen myself having my own company. I really wanted to build a successful company. I have been driven to do that. And I've I've always had kind of two separate goals, one sort of personal goal. And I guess that has been really to support my family, to look after my parents. You know, I'd love to buy my mum house one day. That's kind of like my personal drive. And then that leads to my personal vision of having a big successful company. And then on the other side of that vision, and I guess perhaps less of a vision and more of a mission, because it's something that I'm always trying to move closer towards, which is to get more people to eat healthy food. You know, I I think about it from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. I get so unbelievably frustrated about the food industry, about how we've moved so far away from what our food chain should look like and in such a short space of time as well and we've really got to make some big big changes you know I think there's a lot going on at the moment obviously talking about sustainability and about climate change and in amongst that is obviously our entire food system but I don't really think that we're making big enough strides yet to change what our children are eating to change our children's understanding of what food is there for and what food you know, how food should function in your life. You know, the fact that we don't have nutrition taught in schools is something that I, you know, I'm really passionate about changing all the way through to, you know, I think the fact, and I've definitely felt this with Detox Kitchen, is that often I feel a little bit like I'm preaching to the converted where that's not what I want to be doing. You know, I want to, I want to appeal to everyone. I want to be a mass market brand so that I know that, you know, we're, we're showing people how you can really get healthy food in your life for good and it's not this kind of treat that you can afford at some stage to do so yeah for me the kind of those two go hand in hand that 
vision of success, personal success, but also like a, a much bigger meaning, um, which is to kind of change the way we eat, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's also the big thing is it's got to be affordable, hasn't it? So that everybody can get on board with it. And I imagine you don't want it to be really mass sort of well mass produce mm. possibly but then you've got a hell of a lot of processing going into the food as well haven't you yeah well that that's the biggest challenge with healthy food without without a doubt I mean we have turned down quite a big offer from one of the big four supermarkets mm. to produce uh, ready meals because they wanted a ridiculous shelf life there was no way we could have got that shelf life without meddling with the food you know using chemicals using mm-hmm. long conservatives and yes, it would have meant that we would have probably tripled turnover in a very small space of time. But for me, I was like, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to compromise on this because all other brands are compromising on this. You know, the the food that you consume through, apart from kind of, you know, individual, you know, fruit and veg that you would get from the supermarket, most packaged food or ready meals in the supermarket is, is highly compromised. It's high in fat, it's high in saturated fat mainly, high in sugar, high in salts, you know, low in nutrients. And I just didn't want to be another one of those brands and I didn't want to sell out to that. So I think that's why we went down the direct consumer route, because that meant that we could preserve our shelf life. You know, we're producing food. The, the food we produce in our central kitchen today is the food that our customers receive tomorrow morning on their doorstep. I, you know, I will never compromise on that. You know, for me, I guess, what would the point be? I am so driven by changing the food industry that if I were to compromise on something like that, it would it would just go against my belief system so you know it's a real struggle how do we make healthy food accessible to everyone I think there are lots of different ways to do that I think what you know we're trying to do that and we're trying to bring down our price point as much as we possibly can there is definitely an argument for people having to accept that they need to pay a little bit more for good quality food because if we're not willing to accept that the people that then suffer rather producers you know I guess it's similar to kind of the milk industry is that you know we have to be willing to pay more for milk we have to be willing to pay more for chicken if we want to have happy chickens if we want to have happy cows and so it's always just striking that balance of what the consumers you know how do we drive education from consumers get them to understand what the you know where the costs are in the food chain and why healthier food tends to be a little bit more expensive but having said that, there are also ways to eat healthy food and not be expensive. I think a lot of that is to do with cooking from scratch, having more confidence in cooking, being more educated in how to th- kind of throw meals together and really understanding what nutri- you know, how to balance nutrients on a plate. And that's something that we do at Detox Kitchen as well. So whilst we, you know, yes, our product is kind of, I guess, slightly premium, we do share a lot of recipes, which, you know, not only do we share, obviously, to our customers, but we share them on social media. And that's a, a global way to share recipes that are quick and easy and affordable to, to make. So I guess for us, that's always a piece of the puzzle of we need to kind of educate as a side part of our product. Lily, I mean, what fascinates me is that your product is so fresh. You're turning around these meals really quickly. You that is a really swift operation because you've also got to factor in the delivery too. Have you managed what's been the formula to grow a business that is like this? Yeah. Well, it's really difficult. I think operationally, it's a very stressful <laughs> business. I often wake up in the morning and think, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> A really interesting business model that's growing at the moment is direct consumer frozen meals. And everyone keeps saying to me, oh, why don't you just do frozen? It's so much easier. You can batch cook frozen meals. You don't have to cook the food every single day. Like it will just really kind of streamline your operations. And yes, it would. It would, A, it would improve our margins. It would mean that we have less, you know, we would need less staff. You know, everything would be much more efficient in our central kitchen. But the compromise of that would be that the product wouldn't be as nutritious. And again, that's just something I'm not willing to compromise on. So we have got a really good formula now. You know, we have no food waste whatsoever because all of our orders are are made to order. So our customer places the order 48 hours in advance. The orders go to the kitchen that day. The food is ordered exactly to match the amount of food that we require for those meals. The next day the food is made and the next day it goes to the customer. 
So, you know, it's a it's a very efficient operation that we have running in our central kitchen. And, you know, I've been doing this now for, for nine years and it's taken a long time to sort of get to that point. But yeah, I'm really happy with where we are. And I think the exciting thing for me is that probably before lockdown, I didn't think that we really had a scalable model. I always thought that there was a ceiling because I was like, I just can't see how we would, how could we could deliver the quality of food that we we're delivering on a mass scale. And actually during lockdown, we have really kind of worked on our tech side of the business and how we can make sure that all of the efficiencies that we possibly need are there at our central kitchen. And that really has transformed our business. That has meant that we've launched this new product, this Fridgeville product, which is much more affordable, can go nationwide. You know, that's the amazing thing is that nationwide, for example, so today we're cooking meals that will be on someone's doorstep in Scotland by midday tomorrow. It's incredible. Yeah, which is great. So, you know, we've got we've got a really good logistics company that we work with. I also think keeping everything in-house has been really beneficial to us. It's meant that we can act really quickly and kind of develop new things, change things, you know, continue innovating our product until it's absolutely perfect. And of course, it's never perfect. You have to continually innovate because things change all the time. But but also, yeah. I imagine it brings you very, it gives you a very close relationship to your customers too. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that that is the most important thing. Like real-time customer feedback is so important to us every day we have customer feedback that comes through our customer service and they kind of have like highlights and all of that information is used to steer our product whether that be customers saying that there's maybe too much packaging or customers saying that their deliveries were late or customers saying that they absolutely loved this meal but they didn't love this meal all of that information is used and you know we can that's gold dust really isn't it it's total gold dust, but I think it's gold dust when you can actually use the information quickly, yeah. where you can turn around a product and you can say, okay, I'm going to take that product off the shelf because that hasn't worked. We've heard from customers that it's, you know, not in the vein of detox kitchen products or, or whatever it might be. We, we can take that off immediately and we can replace it with products that we, you know, think that they will love. So I think being able to do that really quickly, and that's part of having everything in-house and also having a small team doing it. So the you've talked about the upside of the pandemic with this incredible mm-hmm. growth and yeah. also streamlining with your systems. How yeah. has the pandemic also affected the detox kitchen? Because you've got your two delis, which I imagine are on hold at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that has been kind of, it was stressful in the early days when we were just sort of unsure. I guess we had, you know, outgoings that we weren't, we didn't know how we were going to sort of cover them. Luckily, we had some really great rent concessions from our landlords. But, you know, furloughing all of our staff has been, I guess, in the, it, it sort of difficult because of all the unknowns. But that has actually been fine. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to look after our staff during during all of this. And, yeah, I guess we just kind of got used to it like everyone else. So that so the, both of the sites are closed. But Kingley, we've been doing Deliveroo from our Soho site and we're hopefully reopening Kingley in April and then Mortimer Street will probably reopen in June. But I think the challenges will come when we reopen. You know, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of government support while they've been closed. But I think when we reopen, I think a lot of the hospitality and industry and certainly restaurants and cafes will struggle if they're not getting towards full capacity quite quickly. Because what a business can't afford to do is, you know, be at 40% revenue. That's when they start you know, racking up losses on top of the probably cash that they've already used up. So I think for us, that's where the challenges might come. But actually, I feel quite confident just because we've built such a strong online channel now that really that will support all of kind of anything that might happen with the delis. And I think that, you know, that's a great thing for the business. And I'm, again, really super thankful that we are a kind of omni-channel business where we have delis, we have retail, and we also have direct-to-consumer. I think that's how a lot of hospitalities will now change. It's meant that direct-to-consumer has become incredibly competitive, but, you know, a little bit of competition is always quite a good thing, I think. Keeps you on your toes. So, Lily, I just want to dip really into the, the fundraising side of mm. the Detox Kitchen. Now, you're a mum of three under the age of six, which is massive. Your <laughs> husband, I've just understood, is working full-time too. You're working full-time too. You've mm. raised an incredible £2.4 million in two funding rounds. 
one from private equity and the second from crowdfunding. What Mm. hurdles have you experienced with being a mother and, A, running the business, but also, importantly, fundraising whilst being Mm. a mother too? Gosh, a lot of hurdles, I would say. A lot of hurdles and at the same time, it hasn't maybe been as difficult as I thought it would be. So I think it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because it's sort of like, what are my perceptions of how difficult it's going to be and how have they affected the journey of fundraising, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the the hospitality industry, if you take the top, I don't know, 10 direct consumer food businesses, the businesses that would have raised the most money without a shadow of a doubt will all be run by men. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, I think I almost can guarantee that stat. And what I've learned from that is when you, as a woman, it's a lot harder to, you know, I want to run a profitable company. That's what I want to do. I want to be profitable. I want to have a really great product. I don't want to compromise on that product. I want to look after my staff. And all of those things take a lot of kind of fine tuning, focus. And I I think I've chosen the route of, yes, of course, I want to grow and I want to be a big company, but I want to do it in the right way, in a sustainable way. And I think men have a slightly different approach. They're a bit more sort of aggressive with growth. You know, they want to be the, you know, they're aiming for kind of this unicorn effect. And that allows them to be a lot more bullshy when it comes to investment. You know, I've seen companies that are doing a lot less than us in turnover. They're loss making, but they're raising on a much higher valuation Mm -hmm. than us. And they're raising a lot more money. I don't think I could walk into one of the big private equity houses and convince them as a mother of three with a business that is kind of has grown fairly organically in many ways, but is very sustainable and profitable. Amazingly, I wouldn't be able to convince them over a company that's run by men that my company was the better company to invest in. And I don't know if that's my preconceptions, um, but that's certainly how I felt meeting a lot of private equity companies and investors you know so yeah that that has been difficult and I think it's also been difficult you know the first time I was fundraising I didn't tell my investors that I was pregnant with my second child I'm also not sure that they knew that I had a first child (laughs) if you don't Um, ask you don't know (laughs) I I always remember being at I think we had a launch party at one of the delis or something and I was holding my you know nine-month-old son and they were like oh who's this like this is Finn they're like oh who is he I was like yeah he's my son (laughs) okay cool so you know I think that that is another kind of example I I should have I should have felt confident to say something but I knew it would have jeopardized my ability to fundraise you know I've heard stories and I know I know a few women who have told someone that they're pregnant and the fundraising has been or hasn't gone through or has been withdrawn so it does happen sadly and I think a lot has got to change. You know, it really has. I think we're making some progress, but certainly not enough progress. I find it really shocking. And certainly when I was fundraising for my chocolate business, I ran across issues that you just felt if I was a guy, I wouldn't actually be running into this stuff. Does it frustrate you that some of these guys have got these overflated valuations on their business and are managing to attract huge mm. sums? Does that, does that frustrate you that you you feel that you couldn't necessarily do it or you're not bothered? It does frustrate me. I think what frustrates me the most is that in order for women to kind of fundraise as men would more aggressively, we have to change the way that we are. We have to change the language we use. We have to be Mm -hmm. more like them. And that's really sad because actually, why should we, you know, why shouldn't I be able to walk into a room with 10 men in it and say, I have built a business which has got incredible customer loyalty, which is profitable, which is innovative, which has huge growth potential, which could scale globally. Why should I feel in that room that I am not as good as a guy who could walk into that room and say, I started a business a year ago, I've thrown two million pounds at marketing and have acquired X amount of customers and therefore it's scalable. And yes, I might have lost X amount in the last however, you know, they're not comparable yet. The way that the, the man is more likely to kind of position it somehow is, is more convincing, is more compelling than the way that I would position it. 
And, and, you know, I don't want to change that. I don't want to be the person walking. You know, I've been really, really conscious of that in my whole career of I don't want to change my personality. When it comes to managing my staff, when it comes to walking into a boardroom, I want to be the person that I am. I don't want to suddenly change because I think that the more you change, the more you practice changing. You do change. You become, you know, potentially more aggressive, more manipulative, you know, all of these things that you have to be a little bit of in business. And and I'm, you know, am and was determined not to do that. Um, and maybe it's been to my detriment to an extent, but it certainly hasn't been a detriment to the business. And I think a lot of female founded businesses, you know, are, are just run so well. You know, I am, I obviously I'm broadly speaking here because there are guys that run very successful, profitable, brilliant companies as well um, and vice versa. But I think the general, the general feel is that, you know, if a, if a man and a woman walk into a meeting with the same business, the man will get the investment. So there's room, there's room for change and room for improvement. Lily, yeah. would you say that you're a natural leader? Oh, no, I wouldn't actually. I don't think so. I think I've always felt like a bit of a misfit, actually. Even at school, I never felt like I really belonged to any sort of group. I've always sort of got got on with everyone and always had lots of friends, but never felt like a leader in that respect. I haven't felt like I people have followed me and, want, you know, I've sort of been the centre of attention and that's just never really been part of my personality. And I think even now... I, I would say I'm quite an introverted person and my team actually are quite introverted and you know it's a really difficult thing I think the hardest thing about running a business certainly the hardest thing about growing a business is building a team and leading a team and I think not having a co-founder who's been that person who's been you know the person who you know, it's really extroverted and gets people really hyped up and kind of wants to take you under their wing and show you the way. You know, I think we probably could have done with something like that. And maybe, you know, going forward, that's the, the sort of person that I will recruit for. I think in some respects, you know, I think I can convince people of my vision. And I think as a business owner, that's almost as important as being a leader. You know, if people really believe in what you're trying to do, then then that's enough for them to follow you. You don't necessarily have to be I mean, what's the definition of a leader, I guess? Instinctively, I don't necessarily feel like one, but perhaps in some ways I am. I think you must be because you're clearly leading your team in in some way. Yeah. What would you say is the vital ingredient to making good, effective decisions? I think historically I would have said trusting your gut, but I have really moved away from that phrase because... It's not about trusting your gut. It's about trusting your brain. It's about knowing that you have taken in so much information in your experiences that you trust what your brain is telling you. You trust your instinct in a way, but it's much more than that. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a reaction. It's all of this information that you've gathered over a period of time because you are good at what you're doing and because you're passionate about what you're doing and because you want all of that knowledge that you are able to make decisions so I think that is really important. Just trust yourself. Trust that, yes, trust your instinct, but trust your head more than anything and, and really value yourself. I think that's one thing that I wish, you know, I would certainly say to my daughter and my sons is your opinion and your value is so much bigger than you will ever realise it is. And I think women are probably, I think it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier, you know, maybe the difference between a, a man and a woman walking into that meeting is that he really values his opinion. He really thinks that he is right and that he is going to turn this business into the next Coca-Cola. Whereas women find that harder. It doesn't feel as natural. So true. For some reason. I don't, I don't know what, why that is. I think maybe because socially we've been so oppressed. But, <laughs> you know, it's such a shame, I think, that it's crazy that women aren't do feel like that even now, you know, given all the opportunities that I've had in my life that my mum didn't have and that her mother didn't have, you know, we should be further on. We should be feeling like we have, you know, we, we believe in ourselves more. 
I think, though, I mean, I definitely see that we've made progress. I think maybe it's mm. having notched up, at, at, you know, 10 years on from you, but it's mm. or probably slightly older than you than that. But but I think we have and I think we have to reward ourselves that we have moved forward and progress is being made. It may seem slow, but yeah. we're going in the right direction. And, you know, I love the way there's so many women galvanating, you know, networking groups, stuff like that. When I set up my mm. business, that was pretty I mean, it was just almost non-existent at all mm. and I, I so I find it exciting and I think you know the younger generations are going to keep on charging it and and I I would love to see it in say 20 years time and I think it will be a very different landscape hopefully everybody working together not just women and men but the whole diversity you know gender yeah. neutral sort of thing everybody mm. with the same goal rather than this sort of semi sort of backstabbing egotistical nonsense yeah. anyway onwards from that <laughs> that time is rushing on and there are a couple of things that I still haven't asked you before we hop into the next section of the show so Lily climate change really important and sustainability where do you and the detox stand with it because presumably there's a quite a lot of packaging I don't know if you're mm. using a load of exotic ingredients but where are you positioned with it so it's really difficult because what's happened in the last 10, 15 years is that the demand for convenience food has skyrocketed. We want food. The moment we feel like we want something, we'll want to click a button and we want it at our doorstep. Whilst at the same time, I guess the demand for more sustainable products has also risen. And unfortunately, convenience and sustainability don't really go hand in hand with each other. So we're always sort of fighting. Um, and I think you know, sort of product-wise, certainly packaging-wise, it's getting so much better and there's so many more options for companies, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. I have this vision in my head that imagine you could have a box of food delivered to you and you take all the food out of it, you put it in your fridge, and then you put that box and all of the packaging that's in the box, so the, you know, the ice packs, the wool cool, and you pop that box in your bath and you run a tap on it and it all just disintegrates and it goes into the drains, and it's not chemical at all. I think that type of product is not far away. I mean, I say not far away. I think it's probably like 10, 10 years away, because there are products now. There are, I don't know if you've heard of packing peanuts, but you put them and you just you put water on them, and then they just disintegrate completely. Wow. So I think the, the point is, is that we're always trying to get the latest innovations when it comes to packaging. So all of our packaging is made from recycled materials. All of it is re recyclable as well. So we're kind of trying to minimise our footprint as much as we possibly can from that perspective. And then we use wool cool. So wool is obviously a material which is great because it's regenerative. You know, sheep keep producing wool. And so we use that to make sure that our product is cool. And it's compostable. Now, the problem with it being compostable is that's great for people who have a compost heap, but it's not great for people who don't, who can't then recycle it in a normal way. And so what we're trying to do there is have a returns option so people can send it back to us and we can reuse it, which is... Oh, that would be great. Which is great. So we're trying to do that. And we're also coming up with sort of creative ideas for this wall call. Like the other day, my mum came down. She lives above me, actually. And she came... <laughs> us and was looking for something to wrap a present that she needed to send to my brother and I gave her the wall call she's like this is absolutely amazing this is perfect so kind of reusing it in in ways I think is also really important and trying to get that mindset of like not you know as long as something isn't single use if we can get 10 uses out of stuff that is designed to be single use and that's obviously a lot better but it's a real conundrum because even the returns idea is is it better to take that wall cool and just reuse it in some way you know can you put it into your garden and use it as a bed can you you know what well, I don't know all these different ideas that you could possibly have is it better for the environment that you do that that you keep it or is it worse for the environment to return it yeah to transport um, it back again transport so we're constantly in this kind of okay we're trying to work out what the carbon effect is but it's really, really important to us. It's really important to our customers. And so we're always trying to come up with the kind of the best ideas, I guess. And then we also offset our carbon. You know, there's lots of initiatives that we do, you know, like, for example, all of the coffee from our from our delis goes and is then reused for compost or for, you know, lots and lots of other things. It's, it's this amazing company, actually, that just come and collect everything. We also have a very similar company who come to our central kitchen. They're called Pale Green Dot. They take all of our vegetable trimmings and they use them as fertilizer 
which is amazing. So they're trying to create this kind of circular economy where basically they would supply us with vegetables. We would then have the vegetable trimmings. They would then come and collect those vegetable trimmings, make them into fertilizer, fertilize the vegetables that they would then send back to us. So there's kind of this really lovely idea of, you know, the, the circular economy, which I think we need to just do in, in every aspect in our households as well. Um, Absolutely. So, yes, trying to do it as best we can. Do you ever doubt yourself? Wow, that's a big question. Um, oh, all the time, yeah. I kind of do and I kind of don't. It's strange, actually, because when I first started Detox Kitchen, I honestly believed that anything was possible. I just thought anything I did would just work. I just didn't even question it. And then as you get older, and I think as you you know, make a lot of mistakes, you realise that things do go wrong. And then you do start to question yourself a little bit more. But I think what I've really learned is that I don't really have time to question myself. You know, my job is problem solving constantly. I have to just solve a problem and I need to solve it quickly because if I'm not solving it quickly, I'm holding someone else up and I'm stopping the team from progressing in whatever they might be doing. So, yes, whilst I might, might question myself, I don't do it for very long. I have to just kind of, in order to move forward and in order to be progressive, whether that's personally or for the company, I have to just kind of commit to a decision and then later find out if it was right or wrong. (laughs) And like um, quite a few of us, Lily, I don't know if you have the inner critic, that sort of negative internal monologue. Do you you ever have that sort of chatter going for you inside your head? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's sort of a balance, I guess, of sometimes feeling like that and sometimes not. And I think I think hormones play a huge part in that. You know, depending on what time of the month it is, I feel like I can achieve anything and I feel like I am working at a million miles an hour and I'm being super efficient and I'm just like, yes, I can do anything and wow, I'm amazing. And then other times of the month, I feel like I am a complete failure and I don't know what I'm doing and why am I doing all of this and what is it all for and, you know, and I'm constantly questioning myself. So, but that's part of being a woman. And I think that's part of the strength of being a woman is that, you know, it's, it's not a bad thing to question yourself necessarily. I think imposter syndrome is something that society puts on us. It's not a feeling that we should feel. It's not a feeling that we are genetically predisposed to feeling. It's something that we have been made to feel, which is, is sad in a way. So I often try and push those thoughts out of my head. Has anything ever slipped by you in life that you regret? I have this really strange thing, and I don't know if this is like all mothers feel like this or not with a second child, but with my first child, I, I didn't really take maternity leave with, with any of my children, which I do regret. I regret more for myself rather than them because I know that you know I was looking after them and my, my mum looked after them a lot as well. So I know that they were loved and I don't feel any guilt or regret about that. But I think for myself to sort of have slowed down to just have spent that kind of joyous time with them when they were little. I do regret that a little bit. Um, But with my second child, my memory of her is, I just have no memory. I can't remember what she was like when she was little. My first son I can remember pretty well and remember all the little things. And the only reason I'm starting to realise this is that now with my third son, who's just turning two, and he's starting to do things and say things, I'm like, oh, Finn used to say that when he was your age, or Finn used to do that. Or, and I can never remember with my with my daughter what she used to do. <laughs> and I think that was because I feel terrible about it. I've had to start writing down stuff that she's doing just so I can, you know, so she doesn't get a complex about it. But um, I think that was at a time, when I had Eva, it was a very stressful time at the company. We'd just taken on private equity funding. We'd just brought in a managing director. We had a chairman. It was all just, everything was going a million miles an hour. And I had this tiny little person that I had to look after. And my brain was in a, just a really strange place because I had to be this like maternal, nurturing, loving person. But I also had to be this businesswoman who was growing this company, who had a lot of responsibility on her. And I think in the midst of all that, I think my brain, part of my sort of memory, just totally switched off. I was like, I'm sorry, I can't function right now because you've got way too much going on. So when I look back at that time, I think, you know, I probably would have done stuff slightly differently. And I, I'm sad that, that that time with my daughter slipped me by. But but I don't, I don't feel regret, really. I feel, you know, I've got such a close bond with her and that can only get stronger and better. So, yeah. So we're going to enter into the quick fire round before we tuck into a little bit of chocolate. Optimist or pessimist? Oh, always an optimist. Introvert, extrovert or an ambivert? Introvert. 
perfectionist or non-perfectionist? Was an uber-perfectionist, is now a total non-perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> Early bird or night owl? Both. Both, there you go. So 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so grab your chocolate, Lily, and oh. we are on to Lint's Orange Intense. Yes. Why have you picked this bar? So I was going to choose a toffee crisp. I'm not going to lie because I love <laughs> toffee crisps. How good is a toffee crisp? Is it is. For, I haven't had one. I wish you had. I hadn't had one for oh, years sorry. and years. <laughs> oh, God, I love toffee crisps. They're just so good. But so... I think my favourite chocolate is a Toffee Crisp and then closely followed by a Kit Kat. Mm-hmm. But I probably eat this chocolate, the orange chocolate lint, the most because it just, it hits the sweet spot mm-hmm. enough. But you also feel like you can eat the whole bar and not feel that, you know, like you've eaten. Guilty. Exactly. <laughs> it's the sort of dark, isn't it? The balance of the dark and the slight acid from the orange and oh, sweet so from good. the peel. It's very good. Okay, we have no time to dally on the chocolate bar because we've still got a load to fit in. So keep eating, but you just need to answer. What are your thoughts on the words success and failure? How do, what do they mean for you? Mm. Well, they're both very complex words. I think that's true. I think success, my idea of success has changed massively um, over the last 10 years. I think if I had told my 26-year-old self that I would have a company like Detox Kitchen, my 26-year-old self wouldn't have believed it. It just, but the problem is, is that the bar is always moving. So, you know, you hit, you know, your first kind of revenue milestone or your first amount of meals that you've created milestone, whatever it might be, first shop, first book, whatever it is. And these milestones sort of just pass you by almost because you're onto the next thing and you want it to be bigger and better. So I think success is a difficult one because it's always, you never really get there. You're never really successful and that's it. You're always chasing it, I think. But for me, I think success is success is probably about acknowledging success, really. It's something that I'm really working hard to do, of like just sitting down and acknowledging the things that have been good and successful in the day. Failure. Failure is a funny one as well, because I don't think I've ever really, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily failed at anything. I think, again, like, you know, I am a always optimistic person. And so for me, I don't really see anything that I've done as a failure. I see it much more as a learning. You know, I think I'm at a sort of interesting time in my life at the moment because I feel one thing that I didn't do as well as I could have done is my education. I mean, I did, you know, pretty well throughout school, but I then chose a degree that I just shouldn't have chosen. And now I'm trying to rectify that. So I'm trying to, I want to do some online courses. I've just signed up to a really cool course actually on um, Harvard. I've just put all of their lectures online so you can just go yeah it's amazing it's called edX it's completely free so I'm doing a philosophy course at the moment called um justice by Michael Sandel and it's just like a night you can just do it you know an hour at night and for me I'm trying to sort of rectify that failure in my mind almost of you know not kind of doing what I had probably wanted to do when I was at university It's quite reassuring to hear because I didn't go to university for various reasons and yet I really wanted to. And so Mm. my thing has always been to do courses to just prove that I have a brain. Mm. And this this lockdown, I'm definitely going to look into the Explore the Harvard courses because they sound fascinating. This lockdown, I'm doing a wine course. And my goodness, it is massive. Every night I'm trying to teach myself how to revise and do flashcards and things like that. But it's that thing where you set yourself a goal and you just think, you know what, I can do this. I can learn. I can regurgitate. Are you enjoying it? I'm loving it. Absolutely yeah. loving it. It's it's a brilliant course. And actually tonight we've got seven wines to taste, which makes me feel quite um quite sort of nauseous. Um but but it, no, I, I I because of chocolate and because of I, I love good wine, I yeah. love coffee, I like mm. to know origins, flavours, all that side of things. I, I I find it fascinating and I just want to now go on a huge great wine tour, take a sabbatical oh, and just Yeah, it's my dream. It's my dream. Okay, so well-being, skipping from wine into well-being, um, how important is incorporating looking after yourself in your day and do you manage to achieve it? Very important. I guess for me, well-being is about feeling physically able, 
but also mentally able to do things. Um, so I, I really don't want to sound like one of those people that like do loads of stuff, but I am one of those annoying people that do loads of stuff <laughs> because I just, I do it because I enjoy it. Like I, you know, I go for a run pretty much every day, maybe every other day. So I'll run like 5k and that's because after I've been for a run, I'm just better at work. I'm happier. Just everything is just better. I try to do a bit of yoga. I probably had to do that two, twice a week just because having children who, who want to be carried all the time, if my body wasn't strong and my shoulders keep, kept going when they were young. So I need to kind of keep physically fitter. You know, I read a lot. Reading for me is is my kind of total switch off. I've sort of lost cooking used to be my total switch off. But since I've had children, cooking is not how it used to be. You know, I used to have a bottle of red wine and would sit there with my husband and we would chat and I would cook and it would all be lovely and, and romantic and <laughs> and soothing. And now it's like absolute chaos and someone's <laughs> shouting noodles at me and someone's throwing fish finger at me and someone's got ketchup in the hair. So I've had to sort of find a way to recharge other than cooking which has definitely become sort of reading and yeah I just I, I I think for me again it sort of goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning which is knowing what makes you feel good and doing it for a reason you know I don't exercise for any other reason than to feel I guess have more clarity of mind and to feel physically fit so that I can kind of take on the day and and you know play with my children as much as I can so I guess it's just knowing that why, you know, why are you, why do you care about well-being? Why do you care about how well you are? There's, there's so many sort of people talk about wellness in so many negative ways, you know, about weight loss and about kind of being a certain person and doing things for a certain reason. But I think if, if your reason is that you just want to feel like, feel like yourself, like a really happy, good version of yourself, then that's probably the best motivation you can have. What triggers your stress and how does it affect you physically, mentally? I do get quite stressed. I think I suppress my stress well. I say that. I think physically it then ends up coming out. But I guess things that make me stressed are, I don't, do you know, what? I, don't, I don't, it's a, it's a strange thing. I don't actually feel, I don't get very stressed because I sort of deal with it quite quickly. I definitely have sort of levels of anxiety, I would say, daily. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's because I've drunk too much coffee or because I'm actually feeling anxious. But if I do feel like that, I will go for a run. I will try and distract myself with something else. I'll just take some deep breaths, you know, really kind of simple things just to stop me from feeling like that. But I think it's also just accepting it. You know, we're human. We are, we are, we put ourselves in stressful situations. You know, life is stressful. I think as well as kind of just the normal day-to-day -day stuff that we have to go through, you know, all of these kind of global issues that we're now facing, especially as a woman, I think you feel that your responsibility to look after not only yourself, your family, but kind of your community and the wider global community and make sure that everyone is safe is like, it just is kind of innate in us. And, and that can cause stress. You know, the other day, my daughter just came out with something and said, mommy, a tiger's extinct. And I was like, wow. Oh, really got to me I was like no they're not extinct but you know they they may well become extinct in your generation in, in in your lifetime and it just made me kind of really sad and that those sort of things trigger stress and anxiety because you're like you know why are tigers dying it's because they're being overhunted and you know all these ridiculous things that you just kind of you can just build up in your head but I think ultimately we've just got to sort of let them go and know that we're leading a good life and trying to to make positive changes what music makes you feel good and what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? Music, Bob Dylan, 100%. Like, well, actually, to, no, so Bob Dylan, I, I just love him. I put him on all the time. And si Paul Simon, mm -hmm. if I listen to Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, I literally, it just makes me so happy. And I went to see him live at Hyde Park maybe two years ago, and it was just hands down the best live music I've ever seen. I actually saw Bob Dylan as well that same year and... Uh, just absolutely amazing. Um, books, God, I, I, I'm a real avid reader. I read every single night. Um, I've actually just put down a brilliant book, which I loved, by an author called Deborah Levy. And she wrote a book called The Cost of Living. And there was a really lovely quote in her book, which that was something along the lines of, it's an act of immense generosity to be the architect of everyone else's well-being. 
And that just resonated with me so much. Like as women, that's all we are. We're just trying to make sure that everyone else is okay. And that's really generous of us. Like that is, you know, what men don't do that. Men don't feel like it's their duty to look after and ensure that everyone else is okay. Um, anyway, that's a brilliant book, and I've just some guys, her. some guys, I think do. No, I think we have to. No, I think right. we have to yeah. give some some dial in their direction. But <laughs> it sounds a great book, so that is one that's going yeah, to stay on your bookshelf. So, what advice would you give to um, anyone who's setting up a business or running their business at the moment and needing a bit of bit of advice? I would say, if you need help, reach out for help. There are so many people. Like I would be. Actually, Thomasina is a really good person to kind of um, talk about here because she, I remember emailing her when I was negotiating my book, my second book deal and my investors wanted it to be within the company and I wanted it to be for myself. It's like quite a hard negotiation. And I spoke to her about it. I, I didn't know her at all. I reached out to her. I sent her an email, I think, and just said, you know, I'm Lily and this is what's happening. She was like, oh, come, we're going to have a coffee. So I went and had a coffee with her and I have been friends with her ever since. And she's the type of person that I'll just call and be like, well, what do you think about this? This doesn't really feel right. And she just offers really good insight, you know, for a woman who is that successful in the hospitality industry. She's just been great, you know, just a text message here and everything will kind of fall into place. So I think really reach out to those people, have conversations, don't be scared to ask for help. And also just, again, it just kind of goes back to that. Listen, just listen to your head, like, you know, if you really think about the decisions that you're making, there is something in there that will either make you feel like it's a good decision or a bad decision. You just have to kind of be more in tune with it. And then I think the final thing is focus on your product. Make sure it's the best product that it possibly can be, um, because that will inevitably lead to success, I think. And finally, Lily, where have you had to have hope and patience in your life, personal life, business life, any life? Mm. <laughs> Patience is an easy one because it's with my children, because I love them dearly and they're just wonderful. But God, do they test my patience? It's very difficult when no one listens to you. So I think I've needed that. I think hope, God, that's such a big sort of question because, you know, my I guess my personal journey has been that I come from a family where we had very little. We moved house a lot. You know, my parents lost their house twice. Wow. Yeah. And, and my parents divorced when I was very young and we've had a lot of challenges. You know, I certainly had a lot of challenges growing up. And I also have kind of an insight into my mother's life, which was also incredibly hard, uh, much harder than my life could ever have been. And I think I ha I think where I need hope is to hope that she will one day get the rewards that she deserves um, for the life that she's led, um, for the challenges that she's faced. And I guess that hope then extends to anyone that you know, he's, he's struggling and is going through really hard, a really hard time. I just hope that at some stage there will be their just desserts and justice. And I hope that they find happiness, I guess. Is your mother a major driving force behind you in being financially successful, would you say? Uh, yeah, 100%. I feel like I owe everything to her to be successful and financially successful because she has done everything in her power to give me the opportunities to allow me to do that. And I feel like if I didn't do it, then I would have wasted those opportunities. So yeah, she most definitely is. A fantastic bond that you have got with your mother. Yeah. So where can our listeners find out more about you, the Detox Kitchen, catch the latest? Yeah, so um, our website is detoxkitchen.co.uk. So they can go on there and find out about all of our products. And we're on, I think we're the Detox Kitchen on Instagram. And um, yeah, we just share lots of, you know, any new recipes and that kind of thing on on there. And then when we're open, please pop into our delis in Kingley Street and uh, Mortimer Street in, in London. Yes, and go and support Lily and her team. I would love to say the hugest of thank yous, Lily, for joining the show today. I have really enjoyed it. I feel I could have chatted to you for hours and hours and hours. It it reminds me of, of when I was younger. It also, I learn from you. It's just, it's been brilliant. Yeah. So thank you so much. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you, Amelia. It's been lovely to talk to you. Anyway, before I go, it's time for my recommendations for this episode, which today is a book and a quote. The book is by a lady called Patricia Davis. She's an aromatherapist 
and it's aromatherapy and A to Z. It's absolutely fantastic. Aromatherapy was a really big sort of healing part of one of my chapters. The essential oils have got so much magic in them and you can do fantastic bath oils, massage oils, um, vaporizers, and they can really sort of help influence your mood. So this book is great because you can dip into it with an ailment or a symptom and it will come up with an oil or you might see oils in your local health store and think, I wonder what Neroli would do and dip into the book and you'll find out. So I'd really recommend that. And the quote is from Sheryl Sandberg and it's, I learned that when life pulls you under, you can kick against the bottom, break the surface and breathe again. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it, or better still, share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Don't forget to let me know what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and none of. DM me on Instagram or just ping me an email. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk, find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.